Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is paramusicology? Is there a relationship between music and the death experience? Can music be used to control people? Hello and welcome to the 712th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And here on 01240, celebrating 70 years of broadcasting here in New England's Blackstone River Valley. Are you, are you okay, Father? No, I'm fine. I'm looking for something. Oh, okay. Uh, pay no attention <laughs> to the man behind the uh, script. Okay, so I'm Ben, uh, and the, those questions and, and random movements came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal and father, Paul. And uh, today we bring you an especially unusual subject with an unusual guest. And uh, we will we'll not be taking calls We will not today. be taking calls today uh, because we do not – well, we do have the ability to, but it will be very confusing for our, our guests who are – you know, from all over the multiverse and from... Uh, but, hey, you know, you can always send emails, paulatbehindtheparanormal.com, for those. So we feel the need for some backup today, so we're happy to have with us our show's casting producer and occasional co-host, Lori Greer, uh, from New York. Uh, we're not uh, lining up guests for the show. Uh, Lori has a background... Well, whether she is or not, she has a background in music education and behavioral science, and we're very happy to have her with us today. Hello, Paul and Ben, and hello to our listening audience, and I so look forward to speaking with our very special guest, who I'm assuming you will introduce now. Uh, you're absolutely right. Your psychic abilities are unparalleled. Now to our guest, uh, coming with us via Skype from the United Kingdom, Dr. Melvin Willen holds two doctoral degrees, one in musicology from the University of Sheffield and another in history from the University of Bristol. He devotes a great deal of time to psychical research and has been closely associated with the Society for Psychical Research and the Ghost Club, two of the oldest and most prestigious paranormal research organizations in the world. He speaks and writes widely on the subject. His pioneering work on the relationship between music and the paranormal has resulted in, among other writings, the books Music, Witchcraft, and the Paranormal, Ghost Photos, The Paranormal Caught on Film, Monsters Caught on Film, and several more. His website, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Melvin, please, Hulford, H-U-L-F-O-R-D dot C-O dot U-K. Yep, that's correct. Well, there we are. So, Dr. Melvin, uh, well, and welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you very much. So good to be here. Oh well, it's good. It's great to have you. So let's let's start off with uh, something that might you know. It's only a few few words of a question, but let us uh, start off with what is paramusicology? Right. Well, paramusicology is a word I made up myself, and basically, it's taking the subject of music, but from a paranormal or unknown angle, if you will. So therefore, it's like combining parapsychology and musicology together. Hmm, interesting. So what drew you to the subject initially? Uh, sorry, can you say that again? You're uh, a bit echoey. Oh, sorry. Oh, so what drew you to the subject initially? Yeah. Um, well, I've been a musician for most of my life, and I've always been intrigued by the occult and the paranormal. And a few years ago, um, I thought it's about time I put the two together and saw, uh, tried to find out if there's connections. And I did find there are plenty of connections between the two subjects. Okay, uh, I know Laurie has some questions, but could you ex could you extrapolate a bit on what you just said? What connections? Yes. Well, for instance, um, there are lots of composers that compose music, and when they die, 
one presumes they stop co composing music, and yet there are plenty of people out there that say, oh no, they're still composing, but they're now doing it through me as a psychic medium of some sort. Hmm. Um, there's one example. Um, there's examples where people are approaching death, usually through some dreadful accident. They hear music, and it's not angels singing to them or anything. It's music that they are deeply surprised to hear. It's not their favorite sort of music. And they, they fortunately come through this near-death experience and report it back and say, what happened here? I heard this strange music, and it wasn't somebody's radio playing in the background. Okay. We'll get back to that, but Laurie, what, what, uh, what do you have in your mind? Well, I was just um, reading some of Dr. Uh, Willen's scientific contributions, some of the papers that maybe he can touch upon, one of them um, being paramusicology and inve investigation of music and the paranormal phenomena, and then one about the Gansfield experiment using the musical targets. I know that's something that we spoke about when we um, talked with Dr. Willens last time, but um, I'm very interested in that, and I think that our listening audience will be as well. And also from um, his paper, The Param Paramusicology and Investigation of Music and Paranormal Phenomena, where he touches on the music and telepathy, and then what you just spoke about, music written by mediums who were supposedly con you know, contacted by dead composers, and also music being heard where the physical source of the sound is unknown and presumed to be paranormal. I know those are a lot of subjects and topics, but I don't know if you can touch on maybe a little bit on each of those. I think that would be very interesting. Okay, yes. Um, the first three or four hours I'll devote to one of those subjects, and then the next three or four hours to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are vast subjects. Um, if, we, if we have a look at Gansfeld, first, first of all, because people get a bit confused about Gansfeld. Uh, Gansfeld is just a German word meaning open field, not field as in grass, but open sort of thought processes, open consciousness. And effectively, the technique which is used by psychologists as well as parapsychologists is to separate a couple of people up and you have one person that is basically in a, a sort of a semi-hypnotic state. They're very relaxed. Um, they're just saying anything that comes into their mind. And somebody else in a different building or a, a different part of the world even is often looking at a picture, but in my case, they were listening to a piece of music. Um, and then at the end of the session, about 20 minutes, half an hour, the person would be played some pieces of music and they would say whether they believed that the piece of music that they were uh, sort of um, hearing in their mind was the piece of music that the actual other person was sending to them. Um, and if they got it right, then wow, it was a great hit. And if they got it wrong, then it wasn't. That's the Gansfeld. Okay. Uh, next subject. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, the musical anomalies. Well, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of these scattered around throughout history and throughout the world. Um, we have a very famous one in this country to do with Borley Rectory. Borley Rectory burnt down in the 1930s, um, but the music evidently comes from the church opposite now when it's all locked up and there's nobody in there. Music can be heard, ghostly music if you like, um, and people open the doors, there's nobody in there. Um, the, the, there's no possible sound source for it. Um, there's also an example from earlier in the 20th century in Versailles where two ladies, um, two English school teachers, were sort of walking around Versailles in the gardens and, and they, in addition to seeing some people who they believed were ghosts, uh, they also heard 
some music which um, appealed to me because um, I don't mind if people see ghosts or not, but if they hear them, then I'm extremely interested. Um, and the music was uh, correct for the sort of period when the, um, the ghosts that they were seeing would have been there. So it was completely anomalous. Well, just if we could interject there for a minute. Now, Ben is uh, the better, a better sound um, expert, certainly, than I am. But our question has always been uh, whether it be voices or music in the case of paranormal experiences, how are these being made if these things are supposed to be spirits? Oh. Yes, indeed. Um, it's, it's through some sort of um, go-between, if you like. There was... One person who I investigated at length, who sadly died actually a few months ago, um, and he believed that the spirit of Caruso was coming through him, but he insisted this wasn't Caruso's ghostly voice suddenly coming out of him, it was his uh, musical apparatus, it was his vocal cords that were producing the sound, but that Caruso was actually um, going through him, if you like, using his own voice. Now, the effect that this chap produced was absolutely remarkable. Um, it didn't sound like Caruso, but it was beyond his normal capability as, as far as I could work out, and I did investigate him at length for two or three years. Okay. So he was using this chap as a go-between, if you like, between our auditory world and the spirit world, if you want to call it that. Okay. Uh, Laura, you want to remind us of the next question? Um... If I can remember what to do. Just to, to touch on the um, music being heard when, and I think maybe that's part of what, what Dr. Willen explained, where the physical source of sound is unknown, yeah. but it's presumed to be paranormal? Yes, I mean, when you investigate somewhere and there is no possibility of a sound source, so you're in the middle of nowhere, um, there's, there's no other people around with radios or anything like that, and music can be heard and sometimes actually recorded, then you have to ask yourself, well, how did that sound source get there? Um, and there's a complete blank, blank, really, because you say to yourself, well, I don't know how it got there, so you investigate some more, you see if there's fraud going on, you see um, if there's people trying to sort of pull your leg and set up something, and when the answer to all those things is no, you have to say, well, I don't know what's happening there, so it, it must be paranormal, surely. I was, um, I think, reading something by Byron Janice, and um, he said he didn't really like the term para paranormal. He called it, um, that he said the word was misleading, so he would rather call it the unknown normal, which I, I kind of think makes, yeah. um, makes a lot of sense. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, Byron Janice, um, who is a classical pianist who is renowned for his, um, his coming back from a number of um, injuries. He had a nerve damaged in his thumb, and then he had another thumb injury, and then he also had um, very, very bad arthritis. But he's, so he struggled to come to terms with these um, illnesses and these, this debilitation. Um, and his inner journey included accepting the reality of paranormal experiences. And I guess he, and, and I wasn't able to, to read any of his articles, I wasn't able to get to them, um, but he, I guess, discovered some um, Chopin scores that um, kind of were these long-lost scores, and he discovered that Chopin also believed in other worlds and, and spirits and also spoke, spoke about that often. And I wasn't familiar with um, 
you know, Chopin, anything having to do with Chopin and the paranormal and having these paranormal experiences. So I don't know if that's something you're familiar with. Well, that rings not specifically with Chopin, but it rings a very big bell. Um, you have an, uh, an amazing character um, called Abel, A-B-E-L-L, who wrote a book in the um, early part of the 20th century about his psychic experiences with composers. Um, and basically what this chap did, he was an American, he went around Europe between, I think it was 1890 and 1918, um, and interviewed as many composers as he could get his hands on. And these are famous composers like Brahms and people of that ilk. And they spoke to him of their experiences, how they composed their music. And, and when it was their friends, then it was uh, how their friends composed music. And I mean important friends like Wagner and the like. And they frequently said that, that they had mystical experiences or God or the power of nature or whatever it was that conveyed their music to them, that it wasn't just through their own hard slog. Of course, they had to do that, but nevertheless, the inspiration for it came from some unknown source. And further to that, um, we, we have a composer that again died a few years ago called John Taverner, and I asked him about his musical experiences uh, directly because I, I vaguely knew him during his life, and, and he said that, that he believed that he was getting his inspiration not from himself, but from some outside source. Now, he chose to call that God, um, but he was happy with it being a different word that one could substitute oneself. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Laurie, do you have um, anything further here? Because uh, he's, uh, Melvin has opened up lots of interesting subjects. You keep, keep going if you wish. Well, no, I, I know you have um, several topics that you want to dis discuss. The idea that the sound of the bells ringing has some kind of spiritual value. Um, and also, I think you had another topic about um, music and its ability to influence um, people's beliefs. Yes, uh, something to that effect. I don't know, Ben, are you... Uh well, I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of um, uh, the singing bowl that, that uh, many different varieties of, of Buddhists use, which is essentially this little little metal bowl that you, that you put on top of this tiny pillow that comes with said bowl, and you get a little stick. You knock the side of the bowl, and it makes this little... They, they each are, like, sort of tuned to a certain note. So, you know, you run, the fing you run your, your little stick after whacking the bowl, and it makes a little ding, but if you run the stick around the bowl itself, it gets louder and louder and louder because it's increasing, you know, the, vi the vibration so much that it's getting louder and louder and louder. And it's, you know, it's a steadiness of hand exercise, a meditation exercise, but it's I always found it interesting that people use it during meditation practices. Now you see other other religions as well. I'm, I'm thinking like certain, certain Christian varieties, whether it's the Eastern Orthodox or occasionally the Catholics, they'll use, you know, bells. And bells were, as I was told by a very old Russian priest, that they were there to ward off, you know, demons, essentially. You know, they, pre they prevented demons from coming into the church and messing with people while they were at services and stuff. And then on a practical level, uh, for many, many years, I've used, I've brought little wind chimes with me on cases that were very negative, especially when there were children in the house who were afraid. And they would walk with me into rooms, and uh, they they just got a big kick out of the little the little uh, wind chimes, and things really did seem to calm down when the house was full of these tones. So I don't I, whether it was a coincidence or whatever, but I thought back to what Ben just said 
that even in Western Europe, bells were considered to be uh, to just scare demons or wore them off, wear, uh, mm. ward them off, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Any comment on that, Melvin? Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, bells uh, from just about every culture you can think of have a great history for warding off demons and the like. In in this country, I'm actually a Morris dancer. I don't know if you know what that is in the states. I, I know what it is. I don't know if our listeners. Well, I, uh, my background is. Is ethnic background is English, but not too okay, common. Okay, great. Well, well, us Morris dancers, we attach bells to our cars and dance around. And although it's not to ward off evil, it's, it makes a great sound, and people seem to enjoy it. Now, in folklore, which is where a lot of this comes from, bells, of course, are very magical things. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, just about every tradition uses them. They they pop up in mythology quite a lot. They, there's lots of paranormal bell ringing goes on, sunken bells from churches that will ring at midnight in, on, in haunted places. Um, it's very difficult to track down how genuine these actual sort of bell sounds are, especially since people have a sort of a, uh, they view it in a loaded sort of way. Bells, or that means it's a good thing. I mean, from a Christian tradition, of course, we always have bells ringing to, to tell people to come to church and at weddings and things like that. Um, I think there's a degree of placebo in this, that when one believes something is going to do one some good, whether it's bells or anything else, then it does some good, and hallelujah, you know, one is happy about that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned coincidence, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's also the possibility that coincidences do happen. Um, I think it, it gets more interesting. You mentioned the Tibetan uh, bowls when you rub the stick round the edge, and, and that produces some very, um, I don't know, penetrating, perfect sort of sounds. And in a suitable ritual, perhaps with incense, perhaps in a special space, then it, it can be quite magical. I've, I've been in situations on many occasions when it has been used, and it's a magical time, and one imagines that perhaps there are extra powers coming in, but I would suggest it's not just the bell ringing the Tibetan bowl type bell, but it could be a number of those factors all put together that add up to a particularly unique experience. Yes, quite true, quite true. Uh, well, the, the issue, uh, there is one thing I wanted to go back to before we continue with this, because I, I don't want it to get lost in, in our hour here. In reference to the interactions with the composers on a paranormal or allegedly, or, or, or um, I suppose, extra normal or whatever, whatever uh, term you want to use, there yep. is um, the question, and we often cite this during lectures as examples of a possible example of multiversal contact between different versions of people, whether that's valid, uh, we believe it is, but maybe not. Uh, we use the example of Mozart, uh, beginning at the age of four, con con I guess compo certainly composing brilliant piano concerti. And uh, what was he in touch with? Where was he in touch with a version of himself where he already is a great composer, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So I suppose in a way it's sort of the the reverse or, or the opposite of, of people just feeling that they're being in touch with composers and then carrying on their work. So uh, have you thought about the sort of the Mozart angle on this or, or that sort of reverse um, yes. phenomena? Yes, in, in, indeed I have. I mean, Mozart is the person who comes up. The Mozart effect is, is well known as well. It's mm. called Mozart that's chosen for this. I think one mustn't forget with somebody like Mozart, great composer though he was, that he slaved away for hours and hours every day practicing as a small child. I mean, his father was quite a, a, a brute to him, locking him up and making sure he practiced for hours at yes. the time. And I think that 
I mean, the great thing about Mozart was the fact that despite this, that he still produced this fantastic music. Um, but if, let's not forget, if he hadn't spent both hours practicing the harpsichord and what have you, um, he wouldn't have been able to play it because you know, we all have to practice our instruments to be able to get some sort of ability on them. That's true, too. Okay, and moving um, on... You, uh, no, go ahead. Hello, yep. Yes. No, I'm sorry, no, to, sorry to interrupt. Okay, go ahead. No, no, go on, go on. Oh, okay. All right, uh, <laughs> The, uh, well, another point Laurie mentioned was the uh, the idea of music as a as a an influence on perhaps human behavior, if I may put it that way. Uh, one thinks of the uh, uplifting sounds that are that are created, or I suppose depending on the choir, uh, how good they are uh, in a Christian church or in in any house of worship, uh, or at the opposite end, the negative effects produced by music that is meant to inspire you know militarism and and uh, perhaps a dev- divisive yeah. feelings of you know one thinks of the, the nazi rallies of the 1930s uh what say you on that yes i mean there's let me give a plug to not my own book but somebody else's book here there's a very good book called the secret power of music by a chap called david tame um, which he wrote in 1984 um, and this goes into that in some depth. And, and what he's saying is that, that music has secret powers for good and for evil to manipulate people. Um, and it's, it can be sort of unknown. Why does it have that effect? Um, now, if it's got words, of course, that can influence us because we can hear the words and we can say, oh, yes, they are sad words or, or you know, they are happy words. So that's sort of cheating a bit, if you like. But when it's a piece of music that, that just consists of... Uh, a horse's hair being dragged across some, some guts, and yet they produce this magical effect, i.e. the bow on the, on the violin string. Now, why does it have that particular effect on us out of the blue sometimes? And I think that that is truly unknown. And so I, we don't want to use the word paranormal, but it's certainly uh, intangible, if you like, or anomalistic, or a different word to paranormal. Well, indeed. There are, there are also some new research findings by a psychologist by the name of Annette Shermer, um, talking about rhythmic sound and how she talks about how rhythmic sound coordinates the, the behavior of people in groups such as, um, you know, in drum circles or in drum corps and how it coordinates their thinking and the mental processes of individuals in the group somehow become synchronized. Absolutely. Yes, I mean, the synchronicity within rhythm is, is very, very obvious, really. I mean, I've, I've played in groups before where I mean, once we are tuned in together, I don't mean uh, tuned in in terms of music, but we are uh, sort of in the zone, if you like, together, uh, then we operate as a team, and, and it, it can be extremely uplifting and powerful. Hmm, all right. Well, be, uh, before we take our break, I wanted to touch upon the uh, experiments you've done. Uh, one thing, and I, I would point out the uh, early scene in the movie Ghostbusters, which I'm sure just about everybody listening has seen, uh, <laughs> and Bill Murray, the character of Bill Murray is playing a uh, rather lazy professor, I guess, at a, at a university in New York City, and he has two students, and he's doing experiments with Zener cards. The cards he's holding up with the funny shapes on them, the stars and the circles and all uh, that the students can't see are called Zener cards. Okay, so just so people will know what that is. But Melvin, you've done experiments uh, not with Zener cards, but with uh, pieces of music in the same context. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yes, I mean, the, the, the Zenit cards were first used at the Ryan Institute in, in America. Yeah, I knew that. Basically... <laughs> Yeah, you, you had five cards with different designs on and, and somebody had to pick which design and some people were very good at it and some people weren't very good at it. 
Um, but the problem with it was it became so boring because imagine you've got to do a thousand trials of just sat, sat behind a screen going star or wavy lines or square, you know, how awful. And, it and was so, awful. Uh, I went through that. <laughs> Did you do it? Oh. Yes. <laughs> well done. Um, well, so a, a chap called Chuck Holliton, um, again from the States, he thought, well, it would be so much more interesting if we didn't just use these cards, but, but we used sort of pictures instead. And I mean sort of um, photographs of different scenes that people would then have to choose what the scene was because at least it's more interesting. And then that expanded to video extracts so that people would look at video extracts and have to be able to say which extract the other person was looking at. And, and then the obvious thing from that was the music, which is, is, way, uh, is how I did it. And, and my music experiments had some spectacular failures as well as some spectacular successes. So uh, statistically, it ended up being straight down the middle, but the statistics don't always tell you everything that's actually going on at the time. Hmm. And I think some of these experiments, especially with the Zener cards, they weren't very tight experiments. There was a lot of uh, reported sensory leakage and cheating that they yes. thought accounted for a lot of the results. So I think, you know, in some of those, um, the results might not be um, accurate. Oh, I yeah, didn't that's absolutely right. Yeah, some of the cards, evidently, you could sort of see the imprint on, on the other side of the card if the, if the cardboard itself wasn't um, thick enough, that sort of thing. No, so, yeah, that's so very true. There was a problem with that, yeah, at one point. Yeah, I mean, any experiment is, is only as, as the person that's doing it. And certainly when I did my experiments, I had I had judges here that were keeping an eye on me to make sure I wasn't cheating. And, and we, we had lots of protocols. And, and finally, when the results were all announced, we then had blind judges, but judges judged those results, not actually knowing who the people were and, and so on. So we had as many different uh, foolproof things in, in play as we possibly could. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to take our bottom-of-the-hour break right now, and you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our wonderful guest today, Dr. Melvin Willen from the U.K., and our co-host, Laurie Greer from New York City. And we will be right back. Stay with us. This is Bob Vila, and my daily home improvement tip will help you keep those little problems around the house from becoming big ones. The Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day can be heard every day on ON 1240 WON Woonsocket Radio at 745 in the morning. The Bob Vila Home Improvement Tip of the Day is brought to you by Cumberland Kitchen and Bath Design Center in the McDonald's Plaza, Menden Road in Cumberland. Visit them online at cumberlandkitchen.com. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, broadcasting for the 70th year right here in the heart of New England. So let's talk about something uh, that's a little deeper and a little, I think, very interesting. Uh, Melvin, we're going to talk about the death experience and music. Now, you've done some okay. experiments with, uh, with MDEs or near-death experiences. Can you just tell us about that? Sure, yes. I haven't done experiments with them because I don't go around half-killing somebody to see if they hear any music. Well, that's but reassuring have, to hear. <laughs> what I have done was uh, I, I had a, a very, very strange meeting with somebody, and it, and it was as if the meeting had been sort of set up. Uh, one of my students was playing in a concert, and he was sharing the concert with somebody else who I just chatted to, never having met him before, and it turned out that he had had a near-death experience when he'd got trapped 
in a train door and it had dragged him along a railway line for a hundred yards or so um, and almost ripped his arm off. It was a very bad news for him um, and he was very close to death and during that time he heard music and thought what on earth is going on here you know he, he thought he was dying the last thing he wanted to do was to hear some music um, but he was uh, through medical science he was brought back and he managed to actually be able to write down the music that he'd heard and he said it's nothing like the sort of music that he liked um, he was into sort of pop music and this piece was a bit like a sort of a Vaughan Williams type piece of music he didn't really know how to write music down so he had to use a machine that sort of you know you press a button and it puts the dot on the on the paper for you um, and, and he, it changed his life he said I'm, I'm still in touch with him now just occasionally and his life has changed completely because of this near death experience but also from the fact that he experienced this music at the time well I find that very encouraging since Vaughan Williams is my favorite composer so oh and mine oh no, really oh my goodness well yeah. we'll have to, have to yeah. continue that subject off the air uh, the, how many would you say ex- people who've had near-death experiences uh, about whom you uh, know have had music in the experience? It's, it's not something I've run into a lot. Yeah, it's fairly unusual. Um, there's a, a gentleman in this country called Peter Fennick that's done a great deal of investigation of near-death experiences, um, and I've looked at a, a lot of his notes about this. And you do get musical experiences, but it tends to be more visual ones. They're going down the tunnel, that sort of thing, seeing the lights, meeting up with people. Um, and it's, it's unusual to get musical experiences, but it's not, it's not never, never say never. So, I mean, I, I have a list of probably about half a dozen or so uh, contemporary ones, um, and quite a few from previous history where people have reported hearing music. Okay, I want to, I'd like to well, pause. If you, if oh, you ahead, people, if you did some kind of a kind of a poll and asked for individuals who had near death experiences to, um, you know, to, to come together and send their experiences, if there would be more people who experienced hearing music. Yes, I, I think that that is a possibility. I think the Phoenix have done that um, and and got a fair number of people saying that they had experienced things, but not particularly music. If I specified music, perhaps there would be more people coming through. Huh. Interesting. Do they ever describe the music they hear? Yes. Um, sometimes they do. Um, and sometimes it's rather vague, like it's heavenly and this sort of thing, you know, angels singing and what have you. Um, but sometimes they, they say that it's, um, well, they use like a cop-out word, really, of saying it's transcendental music, and then I say, well, what do you mean by that? And they go, well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I know. <laughs> <No. laughs> okay. Yes. Um, but so it's obviously uh, choral music comes in quite a lot, and sort of sustained sounds rather than it being sort of jazz or <laughs> heavy metal or something like that. Well, again, very reassuring. Uh, Laura, do you have anything else on that? Um, yeah, I was reading an article um, about, just in, pre- in preparation, so I would know more about these topics, about near-death experiences and music, and um, I was reading an art- article by Clark in 2009 who said that music can influence the electroconductivity of the body, acting as a bridge, basically, I guess, from the, the real to the unreal world, and I don't quite understand how that would work. Just wonder if you could speak to that at all. Yes. I mean, the real and the unreal world, um, they, those are difficult terms, aren't they? I mean, if it's not, if it's unreal, then <laughs> it's not real. 
Um, so I'm not sure what the person's getting at when they make that sort of statement. I would have thought it goes two ways, that um, if the brain is firing off endorphins and things, that, that could then make people hear music when it's not there. But similarly, hearing the music could fire off those endorphins in the brain anyway. So it, it could be a two-way process. Hmm. Interesting. I know I I have perfect pitch, and I've, I've had it since I was, um, since ever I can remember, I think when I was about five. And then I, I found out and I participated in, in a study because um, they were looking at the genetic um, components and the genetic ties of of, of perfect pitch and we found out that my mo- both my mother and my brother had it just that they you know thought everybody just as I did I thought everybody could um, experience this and I'm always hearing music and seeing the written scores in my in my head in my mind yeah. and sometimes it's it's rather nice but other times like when I'm sitting in a concert and I'm having the musical score going through my my forehead. It's sometimes bothersome, and so it, um, you know, as nice as it is, it's really lended lending itself to a lot of problems. Both, you know, when I was in in college for for music, when I was doing um, transcription of of things, and also, you know, now when I just hear and see music all the time. Yes, it, it, perfect pitch is, is an interesting subject in its own right because. Obviously, pitch has changed, so, so what, what we accept now as perfect pitch is different to what it was 100 years ago, and that's different to what it was 100 years before that. So pitch has actually got higher, um, so that if you take a piece of music like Bach's B minor mass, well, when Bach was producing it, it would be closer to B flat minor rather than B minor, um, because pitch has gone up. And, and it can be difficult if you've got perfect pictures, I'm sure you know. I haven't got it, by the way. Um, because if something is slightly out of tune, then you're going to hear that in terms of current day pitch. And it's going to sound presumably excruciating to you because you're going to be thinking it's out of tune. Yeah, it is bothersome at times. Well, there we are. <laughs> Let's pause here for a moment because we want to, we're burning up this hour, chewing it up very quickly, as we often do with excellent guests. And uh, we wanted to give Melvin, uh, Dr. Melvin Willen a chance to talk about his books, his website, where people can get them, and uh, what he has uh, going on in the future. Okay, well, thank you very much. So, um, well, my book is called Music, Witchcraft, and the Paranormal. Um, it was published in 2005, I think it was, um, in England. It's obtainable on Kindle, and it's obtainable in hard editions as well. Um, and what it is, it's a... a a combination of my two PhD theses, but worry not, gentle listener, it's, I'm not using PhD thesis language in it, because <laughs> as we all know, when, when you write a thesis, you have to use the longest possible words um, instead of making direct contact. <laughs> I'll be hammered by the academics for saying that. Um, so what it does, it takes three parts of my first PhD, which was music and mediums, music and anomalous situations and all the details of the Gansfeld experiments, the telepathy experiments, with some of the remarkable ones as, as well as the bad ones. And then it also looks at my second PhD, uh, which was to do with music and witchcraft, hence the title Music, Witchcraft and the Paranormal, uh, which is to do with music that's used in, in pagan uh, rituals and, and similar activities, as, as well as music that's traditionally associated with witches. So sort of things like Mussorgsky's Night on a Bear Mountain and Berlioz's um, Black Sabbath and, and things like that. Yeah. So that's what the, the book is all about. And the website 
just gives you a, a touch of other research that I've done concerning music as well as one or two other things because I've, I've fortunately been able to do some study in other uh, sections of, of so-called paranormal phenomena not specifically to do with music. So it's all there in bits and pieces. Okay. And uh, the books are available on Amazon because I just ordered one. So. Oh, hooray. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, now just... Coming right from that, Ben, did you have something? As a I did. I was actually I was okay. actually going to bring up. Um, I was going to bring this up earlier, and then we got uh, sidetracked. But have you ever done any um, any sort of research or looked into the uh, Gansfeld experiment? Uh, sorry, again, you're very echoey. Can Can you repeat the last part of your question? Oh, sure. Have you done Have you done any research into the Gansfeld experiment? The Gansfeld. Um, yes, lots and lots on the Gansfeld. Um, so, I mean, this is what we've been talking about earlier, whereby uh, people in different buildings are trying to send a piece of music to somebody else in the other building. I mean, I can give you an example of one which was, a, uh, I'll choose a spectacular hit rather than a spectacular miss, hmm. where I had somebody that was trying to receive a piece of music. He had no idea what the piece of music was that was being sent to him in a different building, um, and he was tapping out the rhythm to the actual piece of music and I was recording both sessions so I know he was tapping it out because afterwards I could hear him tapping it so he's tapping out uh, the music to Mars from the planet suite which has got quite a distinctive rhythm to it it's in five time etc etc um, and then he was played back pieces of music and he didn't choose that piece because he didn't like it um, so even though he was somehow getting telepathically the piece of music, he didn't choose that as the piece being sent um, because of his, his dislike of the piece. So that was a miss, but as far as I'm concerned, it was, it was a good hit. Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. Yes. Uh, have you noticed, uh, and this goes to the title of, of the book I ordered, actually, um, having to do with music and witchcraft, have you noticed mm -hmm. a difference between the music used in worship by Wiccans and those used by Christians or other groups? Yes, um, indeed so. Now, some, in, in my experience, and I'm only talking about my experience here, I can't talk for other people, but in my experience of this, uh, Wiccans uh, are quite happy to use Christian-type Western music in their rituals, yes. um, but obviously they don't tend to use things that have got words to them because the words are going on about uh, Jesus and God and, and that sort of thing, which, which Wiccans do not necessarily approve of. Uh, but in addition to that, they use a lot of other types of music, um, composers such as Lorena McKenna, uh, Carolyn Hillier and Nigel Shaw, people of that ilk, who, who produce extremely spiritual music, um, but not specifically from a Christian tradition. Um, and, and music seems to be able to sort of cross over there so that pagan music can be just as spiritually uplifting as, as of course, the great Christian tradition of music is. Okay, uh, perhaps taking that a bit further, uh, we are considering a, a project next year which would be on YouTube having to do with archaeoacoustics. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, we are wondering: uh, Do we really know, uh, taking again th this subject to the next level, what ancient pagans or who you know ancient religions in general, uh, what their music actually sounded like, or was it music? Was was it just sounds, or would, how do we have any way of knowing what they actually sounded like? 
Well, it's it's very, very difficult if, if one is going back to really ancient times. I mean, obviously, within the medieval period and just before the medieval period, there was music that was written down that survived, so you can see what it sounded like, and you can get an idea of the pitch from it um, because of, of the tuning systems that they used at the time. Um, but anything that's back into the ancient times, it's much more difficult to know literally what it sounded like. Um, so it would be speculative. I mean, there's, there's a few tapes around which I've heard of what genuine Roman and Greek music sounded like um, because they've, they've found some of the instruments, but, but how they were played is, is much more difficult to ascertain, really, and the actual music they produced, uh, we don't really know. One observation might be, coming from some of my... In 1979, experiences uh, in Australia when I was rubbing elbows with the Aboriginal people, and mm -hmm. they uh, say, uh, and it's it's re relatively well accepted that their tradition goes back uh, 30,000 years or more, relatively unbroken. So, do you think it would be safe to assume that when one is rubbing elbows with the Aboriginal people, that uh, what you're hearing in their ceremonies would be ancient music? I, I have a, a particular interest in this. Um, I've been to Australia and um, I um, dealt with somebody concerning the didgeridoo, which was mm. fairly remarkable. Um, a, a chappie came back to this country uh, with a didgeridoo and he, he spent a day with me and during the course of the day that he was with me, he said that he wanted me to hypnotize him and then ask him to play his didgeridoo. Um, now, I'm not a hypnotist, but I said, well, I can't hypnotize you, but I can get you into a relaxed situation and then just say to you, do you want to pick up your didgeridoo now and play it, um, which he duly did. Um, and he played uh, for uh, it was about 17 minutes without a break because he was using circular breathing. And I recorded this. Now, I thought it was absolutely amazing what he was doing, but I'm not the world's greatest expert on the didgeridoo. <laughs> um, but I, I brought him back into his normal state of consciousness after, as I say, about 17 minutes and played him back the tape because he couldn't remember what he'd been doing other than he knew he'd been playing the didgeridoo. Um, and he said, I can't play like that. Um, so he said, I don't know what was happening then, but I can't normally play the didgeridoo like I was playing it when I was in this altered state. And so all he could imagine was that perhaps in a previous life he'd been a didgeridoo player from an ancient Aboriginal source and that this was coming through him once I'd got him into this relaxed state. It, well, was, it was fascinating. Okay, yes. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, Laurie, not to put you on the spot, but can you explain to the listeners what a didgeridoo is for those who may not know? I really don't yeah. know. I know it's an, an instrument, but I really don't know what it is. Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't okay. explain it. Well, uh, okay. having having seen them uh, in their native habitat, I guess I, I can explain. It's essentially a wind instrument, and it's a rather interestingly shaped and, and this sort of thing, and, and it has, produces a very, very low, mellow sound, uh, like that of a flute, and it, only very, very mellow. And, and uh, it, it does... Also much has, longer than a flute. Much longer, though. Well, thank you, Ben. I should have asked you. Well, I'm just saying. Is it played horizontal or vertical? <laughs> Shall I join in on this? Oh, please, why don't you explain it? <laughs> Between the four of us, we ought to be able to get somewhere. Yeah. Yes, I mean, they vary in, in length, but they're normally, I mean, the one I've got here is, is about three foot, and yes. it's a hollowed-out piece of wood. Um, traditionally, it's meant to be a piece of wood that the termites have hollowed out. It doesn't have a mouthpiece. It just has a big opening at each end, and you blow down the end of it, and it produces this sort of, some people would say, slightly raucous, sound you then use 
uh, circular breathing, which means at one point you breathe out while sucking in an, another breath to keep the sound going. And you, it involves using harmonics as well so that you can get like double notes sounding at the same time. You can also, if you wish, and this chap was doing this bizarrely, you can use your own vocal cords at the same time. So you're like singing at the same time or howling at the same time as actually blowing it to produce this remarkable sort of sound. Sort of like a kazoo, as we had as children, perhaps. Not quite a kazoo, because kazoo has, has got the sort of membrane across it, and this ah. is just literally a piece of wood. Uh, sometimes there's a bit of beeswax at the top to rest your lips on. Um, it's, it's incredibly difficult to play. I, I, I've got one, and I, all I produce on it is horrible sort of rasping noises. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like me is on the it played horizontally, like a flute? It's not really like a flute at all, because um, it's far lower than the sound of a flute. Um, I, I think the nearest to it, oh dear me, would probably be a, like a bassoon, but the bassoon has got a sound, has got a reed, a, a double reed, so therefore even the bassoon sound is not really the same sound. It's a unique sound, how about that? Mm-hmm. How have your Christmas present, Paul. I'm <laughs> Very good. I'll remember that, Lord. Keep, keep, the, uh, keep reminding me. Uh, Melvin, as far as your colleagues are concerned, what has been the reaction of those who are your colleagues when you mention paramusicology <laughs> or anything having to do with the paranormal? Yeah. Um, well, as, as you can imagine, it varies. I mean, some people just think I'm nuts. Um, some people, I would say most people, are very intrigued by it because lots of people are intrigued by the paranormal. Um, and again, I, I don't like using that word, but we kind of know what we mean if we use it. Mm. And so everybody has got their ghost story. Everybody's got their friend that, that thinks something paranormal happened to them. And everybody loves music. We all love different types of music, but nevertheless, we all love music. It has strange effects on us, on us in different ways. And we're all intrigued by the paranormal. So you put the two together and, and it's, oh, that's interesting. What can you tell me about that? Hmm. What has this work done to your own belief system? Um, well, my belief system doesn't really enter into things because I, I look for evidence of, of matters rather than belief. So, I mean, I am pretty sure in my own mind that, first of all, we don't know everything that's going on in this world, whether it's in music or everything else. And secondly, I want to find out as much about it as possible. Now, I think that there's a lot of, of activity going on within music and the paranormal that's probably just perfectly normal, but we don't yet understand it. And so my job, if you like, my task, my research, is to try and understand what's going on more and more. And little bits come up now and then that I think, well, something's going on there, I don't understand it, so I continue to investigate it. What we refer to as undiscovered science, perhaps. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Well put. One of, well, I don't know if you think the next is well put, but we, we all very often <laughs> point out that uh, accepting evidence is an act of belief as well, in our opinion, because we don't know really, uh, we have to have faith in our own powers of observation, even in mathematics, which can be very slippery. Un, you know, yes. un, so it's, it really is uh, sort of an act of belief to accept uh, evidence and data. Uh, we don't know if, you know, I, I often think back to um, the famous Rene Descartes, uh, Ben's favorite philosopher. Oh, yes, my favorite. Yes, um, <laughs> the, uh, the dualism drives us crazy, but the idea that uh, on his deathbed, uh, supposedly, he uh, said that even... Je pense donc je suis, I think therefore I am, is not enough. <laughs> you know, so yeah. uh, we, we're all sort of feeling um, our way, and 
if we do so together, perhaps we'll learn uh, more and and in a, in a better uh, better way. So that's just a thought. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the problem with evidence is that, that my what I believe is good evidence, you might think is awful evidence. So my own belief system, if you like, is, is different from yours, mm-hmm. obviously. And so I might be very happy with my interpretation of what evidence is, but you, your interpretation of evidence might be completely different to mine. Indeed. So we're, we're you know, so we, we put something down in front of us, and I say, no, this is very good evidence for this, that, and the other, and you say, no, it's dreadful evidence for this, that, and the other. Very practical application of the theory of relativity. Uh, so, t- t- what is your next book? What is your next project? Uh, what are you working on at this point? I'm very interested in the possibility of music being used directly for healing, um, and notably in comatose patients. Um, now, I do not mean music therapy here, so I don't. I'm, I'm keeping away from that. Lots of people indulge in music therapy, and good for them. In fact, my mother was a, was a, a, a occupational therapist so I mean I'm aware of that side of things but I think that if music can have a direct effect on the healing process uh, then I think that's something that hasn't been explored in the West I think it's been explored in the East more so but not so much in the West and I'm very keen on working on that in in probably the next year or so okay there are in in Connecticut in Connecticut actually I ran across and met someone in the hospital and I was working with someone um, from my field who was in the hospital and there was a woman that came around and she was a music healer so she, her her expertise and her training was in music for for healing um, which is you know absolutely different from what a, what a music therapist does but that was something that I was going to look into as something possibly to do in the years to come there excellent yes I approve of that so perhaps we should get together and do it together Sounds good. You can jump on our show's uh, Gulfstream and just zip over there, Laura, right? That'll be fun. Anyway, so uh, does anyone else have any more questions before we uh, wrap it up and go to our announcements? Ben? Um, No, I I think I'm good. Okay. No comments? Okay, good. Uh, Laura, any more uh, comments or questions? Um, no, no more questions. They, could, they would go on and on forever, but I have a lot more, um, lot more reading to do and um, a lot more of, of reading of the, the research Very than good. some of the books that, that Dr. Willens had suggested. Excellent. Well, Melvin, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, you are someone after our own hearts. I look forward to reading your book. And um, we'll have you back, I think, as, as things go. And keep us posted, please. We'll talk to you offline. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable for me. Very thank good, you. then. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. So moving on to our announcements, folks, quite a few as always. Uh, Many thanks to Susan Spooler, Willie Miranda, organizers of the Greater New England UFO Conference in Leominster, Massachusetts. Uh, That was at the uh, Columbus Day weekend uh, earlier this uh, month, of course. Uh, And the event gets better and better every year. The turnout was huge, and we loved rebonding with our good friends Travis Walton, Nick Redfern, Peter Robbins, and others. And uh, there was uh, yesterday at the Danbury Public Library in Connecticut and uh, the Western Connecticut UFO Conference uh, booked solid event, and well organized by Aurelio uh, Maraca and uh, two of our uh, Showtime, uh, or, wow, sometime co-hosts, uh, Shane Sirway and Rosemary Ellen Guiley also spoke there, and many thanks for the great event. Uh, we sell and autograph our books at all these events, of course, including our latest, released in July, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. It's also available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. 
Now, if you can't get to one of our events and would still like an autographed copy of any of our books, you can get them at the show's online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. And our 2016 book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores, and if they don't have it, they can get it. It's also available at uh, all of the, our forthcoming events and, uh, and on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. And again, you can get an autographed copy at BehindTheParanormal.com. And also on this Tuesday, October 17th, Paul and Ben will be right here in the 1240 listening area presenting an updated program on Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, at the Blackstone Public Library in Blackstone, Massachusetts at 6.30 p.m. Uh, we understand that has been booked, but we encourage people to come anyway. Nobody's going to throw you out, and uh, a lot of people who register for these things sometimes don't come. So there, I'm sure there will be seats available, if I may be so bold as to speak for the library. Uh, next Saturday, October 21st, uh, I will be back at the Danbury Library in Connecticut. Not Ben this time, but uh, this will be with author William J. Hall for a program about Bill's 2014 book, The World's Most Haunted House, about the famous Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974, to which I'm one of the few surviving eyewitnesses. And on October 28th, which is uh, a Saturday at 1 p.m., We'll be speaking at the Portsmouth Public Library in uh, New Hampshire, and the subject is, what's really behind the paranormal in New Hampshire and beyond? Uh, and may I take this next picture? We just got some new information here, Ben. Sure. Okay. Uh, we have several events in November as well, including something having to do with the Miss America pageant, of all things. <laughs> uh, what are you laughing at? Uh, but there's another. that's another story. Uh, however, we have received new information this morning. And uh, we, this will be taking place at the Cottage by the Bay in Dover, New Hampshire, on November 17th, Saturday, November 17th. It'll be, uh, the Times will announce next week, but it'll be uh, in the late afternoon or early evening. A buffet dinner will be included. And it, this is, a, I guess, a fundraiser for the uh, Miss New Hampshire... Miss America candidates. I don't, I'm not pretending to understand any of that. But yeah, I'm not quite sure what the relationship is. Yeah, Lord, do you know anything about that? I, I don't know how that works. I, well, I don't know, maybe not. But uh, we will be there, and we'll tell you uh, more fully uh, as we know. But, again, it will. it's $20 per ticket, as I understand it. It will include the buffet dinner. And, obviously, we'll be doing a program, uh, Ben and myself, there. So anyway, uh, Ben, tell us about the YouTube channel. Oh, okay. Well, we are going to be making more content for it soon. Going to have some some interesting interesting panel discussions, perhaps uh, that are, that are in the works with a couple of a uh, couple of our friends we met over at the um, uh, Greater New England UFO Festival, and all sorts of great stuff like that. So stay tuned for that. And we also intend to put all of these shows, all ten years worth of them, eventually we hope, uh, from CBS and from here on ON 1240 uh, on that channel as well. So you'd be able to see, uh, hear the content, and see some illustrations from whoever was the guest that day or whatever the subject would be. Uh, that's going to be a long project, but we will keep you posted. So again, find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find over 720 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, you can find my other books uh, on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble, etc., etc. But again, if you buy them at the Behind the Paranormal site, I'd be happy to assign them for you and... Uh, that for what that's worth. Uh, also, the charities we've adopted, we cite the USA Cares and Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Also, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. Uh, Tony LaRay out there doing great, great things for at-risk youth 
uh, in the worst areas of Los Angeles and lifting the, the, those young people up. It's just inspiring to see. YouthMentoring.org. So please check those out. Uh, Lori, what's coming up on the next show? Well, next Sunday, October 22nd, it will be open minds to answer your questions on all paranormal subjects with Paul, Ben, and popular co-host Shane Sherway. Okay. Uh, we leave you this afternoon. Uh, uh, we're a little... No, we're, we're good. So okay. Go, go, go for the quote. All right. We leave you this afternoon with a thought-provoking quote from Sir Winston Churchill. I love his stuff. Quote, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Uh, he also had a very tiny dog, so I can see why he, he had <laughs> had that, ki- that kind of a quote. Well, I'm going to think about that one. Anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Lori Greer, and I'm going to... S- to tell you my favorite quote, and it's when Einstein sums it all up with when he says we understand only about 2% of how our universe functions. So thanks for joining us on our great and cosmic journey, and we'll see you on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from...